Hello everybody and welcome to BizPod, the Behaviour Intervention Support Podcast, part of BizNet, the Behaviour Intervention Support Network. I'm your host, Sam Harris, Manager of the BizNet Service, and it's just me today, so I'm afraid you're, yeah, you're stuck with me, no guests, um, and I think it's going to be just me for the majority of this series. Uh, this series is called Behaviour Support Ideas parents and professionals and we're going to be trying to just put together a series of ideas or concepts that I use in some of my training workshops that I use in some of my approaches to uh, individuals that have behavior support needs ideas that kind of shape the way that I practice the way that I support people with behaviors that might challenge or might socially isolate them and they're often concepts and ideas that I work with parents and professionals to help them understand how to put the best supports in place for those individuals. I wanted to use the term ideas. Again, I'm a big believer in terminology and I wanted to use the, the, word, the term ideas rather than tips or strategies because one of the things we'll kind of talk about today is that to give someone a sort of clear instruction or tip you should do this or you must try that I think can sometimes be a bit dangerous so you know I'm, I'm more interested in ideas and concepts that we can then make person-centered and shaped to fit that person and where they're at and what they specifically need so that's that's kind of a brief explanation of what this series is going to be about and I also in part wanted to see if I could kind of test myself to keeping something to 15 minutes as much as anything most of my uh, workshops that i deliver are over the course of a day or two days and so 15 minutes is always a bit of a challenge so i'm giving myself very strict strict topics that i'm going to cover so today's today's um episode is called there is no magic wand which I guess as a title is a little weak because I would imagine that most professionals or parents with any kind of experience in supporting someone with sort of behaviour support needs is very well aware of that. Uh, I also don't want it to be something that causes anyone to give up hope because there are lots of things you can find and try and do that could help. But for me one of the, the sort of dangers that I've come across in terms of some of the training that is out there, some of the approaches that is that are out there around behaviour support or challenging behaviour are marketed in a way that would suggest that maybe they are some kind of magic wand, that maybe everyone should be doing this. And to me, that's not people, that's not humanity, you know, difference and diversity as part of who we are as, as human beings. Everybody is different. Everyone's got their own journey, their own story. So, you know, person-centered is a, is a word in the sorts, this kind of uh, professional circles that I move in that's used quite a lot. You know, it's, it's used around um, sort of care packages, um, funding packages, um, education, EHC plans, you know, a person-centred approach has is, is been rightly identified as something that all of us should be moving towards, but often that's not applied when we talk about challenging behaviour or behaviour support. And it's a difficult issue because, you know, lots of the sort of 
uh, fossilised terms around behaviour support are things like consistency and boundaries. And whilst there are always a need for those kind of pro- approaches to be tried and put in place and, and adjusted and addressed, I sometimes think it misses out on that person-centredness. You know, uh, for example, if we're going to use a punishment or a boundary or a consequence or basically something that's introduced after the effect of a behaviour to try and reduce it happening again, that person, for that consequence to work, has to have the cognitive ability to hold the past and the future in mind in that present moment of trigger or upset. So, for example, if I know that every time I shout and swear, I'm going to lose out on my free time in the afternoon. That's one thing. Can I access that memory in the moment of frustration? Can I go back and revisit it and think, oh, actually last time I I got frustrated and swore, mum didn't let me have this thing that I really want. Or have I got the foresight, which again is an executive functioning ability, which is developmental and is different people are in different stages of throughout their lives. How I got the foresight to look ahead and go, do you know what, if I do this, if I choose this behavior, I think this will happen. So maybe I shouldn't do it. So that kind of person-centered approach, I think is vital. So going back to the, the, the title of No Magic Wand, I don't believe there is one way of doing things when it comes to behavior support. You know, it's it's something that I I kind of learned the hard way. When I, I think a few years back, it's probably about two or th- three or four years ago now, I was running the youth services at CEDA, which is the charity organization that oversees the BizNet project. And I was manager of the youth services and I was, I was starting to make my way in the kind of um, sort of world of behavior support and trying to soak up as much information about what things were out there and what people were doing and how we could implement that at CEDA and in our youth services. And during that time, I was also, uh, or we, we, we had started working with a young person who, he was with us from about the ages of eight, right up until about 12 or 13. Uh, maybe a bit older actually. But at the time he started with us, he was eight. And he came to us having been expelled from a mainstream setting. And he was possibly amongst the most challenging individuals that I've worked with. You know, challenging in terms of he he really sort of challenged me to find and think about how best to support him because he, he really struggled to regulate his anxiety and stop it leading him into behaviours that were detrimental to himself and those around him. And so he was with us, I think, probably for about six months to a year in between, you know, he, when he should have been in, in an education placement, they were trying to find a suitable one for him. And eventually, um, you know, we were kind of winging it, we were doing our best, but we weren't making a lot of progress with his behaviours and, and most days were pretty challenging and difficult for everyone, including that young person. Then he got a placement at a specialist school in Dawlish called Ratcliffe, which I personally, I've, I've done a lot of work with Ratcliffe. I really rate them as, as a setting. I think they do some fantastic work. And at the time, um, I wasn't as aware of, of what Ratcliffe did. So I, uh, off he went. He went off to, to this school and, and within a couple of months, 
I'd heard back from his parents that he was doing fantastically well there. He was really settled, hardly any incidences of, of aggression or, or behavioural difficulties. So obviously I was amazed and I wanted to see what was going on. So I, I asked them if I could come out and do an observation, which I did. And they were right, you know, observing him in class, it was a, a bit like observing a different child initially. Uh, he was very relaxed very settled, very compliant, um, very calm, you know, and, and not exhibiting the behaviours that we'd seen in our setting. So I went away from that thinking, right, we've got to put in place all the things that are working for him at Ratcliffe. And they did. And they were using lots of the sort of more um, typical and well-known scholastic approaches when working with a young person with autism so it was things like structure routine very clear boundaries and consequences you know if he if he didn't behave in class or didn't show good behavior in class he would lose out on free time in the afternoon that kind of stuff so we went and put all that place in place at cedar for him ready for the summer holiday period when he'd be with us over six weeks and i have to say on reflection, having put all that in place, it was the single most difficult summer of my entire career at Cedar. He really struggled. We all did. He he kicked against the boundaries. He seemed to almost self-sabotage lots of the boundaries. He it, it almost seemed to make him more anxious, the fact that we had all this structure and routine and demand in place. And I sort of emphasised that word demand because it was that same summer that a parent sort of slipped me a um, piece of information about PDA, pathological demand avoidance. I read that document. This particular child ticked an awful lot of those boxes. It was kind of like it was written for him. And so I went away and did some reading and research and went on lots of training courses about PDA. The approaches used with PDA or that are recommended with PDA are, are often very diff different. And um, they they very different from the typical approaches used with autism and so I had to change the way we worked with this young person and it was a few years back now but there was a, a couple of years back I, I got the opportunity to take this particular young person to one of the uh, video game conferences that are put on and my approach the way that I worked with him then was so different from how I'd worked with him all those years ago in Cedar. You know, the 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 firm boundaries, the reminding him of consequences, that was all kind of out the window. And I, I kind of, rather than get opposite him in a position of authority or power, I had to kind of be next to him as a guide and kind of interact with him as a, almost like a peer, you know, obviously not inappropriately, but as a someone that was there for him and with him. And I have to say, because of those adjustments, you know, so for example, rather than saying to him if he started to swear, that language isn't appropriate, you can't do that here, or that kind of stuff, I would say things to him like, oh, mate, I'm just worried if we get heard using that kind of language, someone might kick us out, and I don't want that to happen because we both want to be here. That kind of approach, that kind of switch, really worked for him. And, and like I said, looking back, I have to say, it was almost like at times it was like being away with with just a friend you know we we had a fantastic laugh i mean i don't like video games anywhere near as much as he does but even so it was a really enjoyable experience and it just taught me so much about how that 
shift in approach is so important for the person that you're supporting. You have to be able to adapt. You can't just say, oh, I'm a firm person, I, you know, I don't take any nonsense. Well, what if that person doesn't need that? You're no longer supporting them, you're challenging them, and they've already got enough going on. So being able to be adaptable, flexible, to not have a one-way approach, I think is vital. And, it, and it's certainly a switch that I, ha I made a couple of years ago that was very clear in my head and I really noticed the difference and it gave me the ability to work with a very different client group. You know, it's, it's that idea that I think sometimes gets touted about that, you know, with consistency and firmness that you, you kind of end up I mean, what's the saying? If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. How long do you keep trying with something if it's not working? You know, if punishment or consequences or boundaries, if they haven't been successful, how long do you keep going? I'm not saying we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't give up on a behaviour support strategy straight away because it doesn't make a difference straight away. But if at first you don't succeed, reevaluate. Why didn't it work? Was it done in the, the correct way? And, and was it really addressing the function of that behavior? And was it able to support that person fully to achieve the right or the most appropriate or the most successful behavior for them? You know, it, it, okay, uh, another, to, to use another analogy, which I, I like to do, uh, you know, flogging a dead horse. No, you, you don't want to flog a dead horse. But maybe, Check its pulse, find out what killed it. Is it really dead or is it lying down? Then you can go back to the flogging to get it up again. Um, <laughs> kind of going off on a tangent there. But for me, it's really about drawing on all aspects of support and all aspects of ideas that are out there around how to support someone to shape their behavior to be more successful for them and those around them um, it's not about saying well this is my product or this is my position this is my approach and you must use it and I'm not ever willing to change it or evaluate if it's working for that particular person you know um so yeah so that's a kind of roundabout way for me talking about the the no magic one there is no one way approach and actually it's about arming yourself with information of lots of different approaches that could be useful. That's my belief anyway. That's how I approach behavior support. I'm gonna try and end each of these sort of short podcast series with references. So if I've stolen other people's ideas, I at least don't get sued too much by anyone because I've sort of given them a shout out. And I've also given you guys or signposted you guys to, to different ideas. but. I haven't really specifically talked about many techniques in this particular episode, but just to give you an idea of, of the types of approaches that I'm th drawing on myself and that I tend to go back to more and more, and then the sort of breadth of that, uh, I, I use something called positive behaviour support, which is probably the, the most touted or pushed government recommended approach uh, in particular for supporting people with or individuals with learning disability and challenging behaviour. Um, it was kind of identified or recommended in the Emerson reports that came out. And 
it's based really on lots of ABA applied behavior analysis type um, type techniques alongside the kind of uh, social uh, social model of um, disability I think or social role valuation I'd, I'd have to check that out um, but, but essentially positive behavior support looks at assessing the function of a behavior and putting measures in place to support that person to maybe find another way to achieve that function or to achieve what they need um, it, it steers away from punitive measures it's very much based on research that suggests that punitive measures are actually not any more effective than positive behavior support measures so why would we use them um, ABA is is very much grounded in some of the uh, sort of well, more well-known research and the, the psych psychology type research and you can use lots of quite clear tools and objective tools to, to come to your conclusion so it's, it's good in that respect um, but I do think that there are some limitations to it on its own but it, it can be a really good starting point uh, I draw upon therapeutic approaches because again if you're working either with the individual to make a change or with the parents to support the individual to make a change there's some therapeutic work that needs doing there to get someone ready to make a change to get someone ready to support someone so we'll draw upon elements of CBT, which you know, cognitive behavioural therapy, which is kind of a, a sort of way of thinking about thinking, which works quite well for, I find, with individuals um, on the autistic spectrum because they can look at the way that they think and process in quite a logical manner. And I know Tony Atwood is someone who's a big sort of proportion of, a proponent of CBT for, for individuals on the autistic spectrum. Narrative therapy is a much more talking-based approach and it's really a nice way to kind of get someone's story and help them use their story to come to their own conclusions about what changes they're going to make and kind of reauthor their story in a more positive way sometimes. I also draw a lot upon mindfulness techniques, in particular the breathing, which is definitely something we'll cover in more detail in in later podcasts so I won't go into too much too much sort of detail with it now and child development understanding child development both both typical and also how it can be impacted with conditions such as ADHD and autism you know understanding how the brain develops in young people and what aspects of the brain need to be in place to elicit certain behaviors you know how you need to have a certain amount of executive functioning part of your executive functioning development development involves being able to put your mind break on to stop and think if you don't stop and think you sometimes just do and if you just do you're not always going to get that right in terms of the social construct so again looking at how people's brains develop differently or how different brain development can impact behavior that's that's a really big part of of my work and, and i use something called rdi which is relationship development intervention kind of specifically with autism to understand the stages of social development how to revisit them put them back into place through interaction but actually also as a framework to understand child development and if any of that needs revisiting and certainly one of my big sort of passions at the moment is is looking at how to build emotional resilience in young people and how to strengthen their ability to emotionally regulate 
So for me, um, if emotional regulation is impacted or impaired or is not fully developed, you are going to see lots of behaviours that would possibly be quite challenging for the, the people around that person or that might restrict that person's opportunities. So, yeah, so I think we're drawing to a conclusion there. So essentially, the, the idea that we're talking about here is that there is no magic wand, I'm, I'm afraid. If there was, I'd be a very rich man. Well, I wouldn't be very rich because I wouldn't sell it for loads, but everyone would want it. So you could all have it for like a quid. Is that fair? I haven't got one anyway, so I don't know why I'm talking about that. But there's no magic wand. There's no one-way approach. And I would always err on the side of caution when you go to a training course or you read a book or someone says, this is how you do it. This is the only way that works because certainly in my experience what works for one doesn't always work for the other and also what works for one person won't necessarily be everything they need for their whole life so you need to arm yourself with a toolbox of support to be ready to support different individuals or even the individual that you have at the center of your focus through different stages of their life so there's no one-way approach but there are lots of approaches out there, so uh, hopefully the rest of this podcast and, and some of the things we're trying to achieve on here will help your help you build that toolbox and also send you and signpost you to places where you can fill that toolbox even further. Uh, yeah, so I think I've, I'm well over time, 21 minutes, gave myself 15, so we'll try and cut that down a little bit, see if I can get better at timekeeping, which anyone who knows me or has worked with me will probably be doubtful of but yeah thanks again for listening and uh, make sure you subscribe to the channel because then you'll get all our new episodes up updated to you uh, you can subscribe on itunes or you can find us on soundcloud uh, yeah thanks again for listening cheers <laughs>